Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll examine the federal government's long-term financial outlook with Dr. Kent Smetters, faculty director of the Penn Wharton Budget Model at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, He and his colleagues recently produced a set of projections showing that under current law, the national debt would grow to 225% of the economy, measured by the gross domestic product, by 2050. That's up from about 100% in 2022. They also noted that changing demographics will reduce future economic growth. We'll ask him about the uh, factors that produce such a dramatic debt increase. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join that conversation. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Smetters. He's been on the show before. He is a professor at the Department of Business Economics and uh, Public Policy at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's serving as the faculty director of the Penn Wharton budget model. He's got a lot of experience with a strong record of research in public economics, as well as uh, experience in the public sector. He served as Deputy Assistant uh, Secretary for Economic Policy at the U.S. Treasury Department, and he's uh, also been an economist with the Congressional Budget Office and the World Bank. Kent, Tory, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. You know, Kent, you may be uh, preaching to the choir here, but I thought I'd begin by asking uh, just why is it important to make long-term budget projections? Yeah, they essentially tell you where you're headed and if it's even plausible (laughs) to be (laughs) headed in that direction. And so, you know, what we're forecasting is a a rising debt to GDP ratio. At some point, uh, financial markets are not going to by the fact that it can continue to increase indefinitely. And so we have to kind of understand the path that we're on and whether we're actually sustainable. And so um, at, uh, at the Penn Wharton budget model, you uh, uh, took a look at this and uh, just like kind of in a nutshell, uh, what were your major findings? Yeah. So what we're projecting is that under current law, and this includes the sunsets and uh, for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that will actually produce some additional revenue, that uh, the debt will increase government debt that is debt held by the public. So it's not including debt that the government holds of its own, but that that held by the public will increase to 225% of GDP by 2050 and then continue to rise even after that. And some people might think, well, that's far into the future. But, you know, if you're a 30-year bond investor or you're uh, an investor in longer-term projects, you have to be thinking out there 
and financial markets do look longer horizon. You know, um, I, I want to get uh, Tori and Steve in, but I um, on your long term projections, I'm I watch these things rather closely, and uh, um, I notice that your projections seem to be a little bit more pessimistic than the last set of numbers from the Congressional Budget Office. Right. Your your revenues were lower. Uh, spending was consistently a little bit higher. And so the debt was, I think they were at about 175% of GDP in 2050. Uh, so, and of course, that would make sense if uh, accumulating over that, that time. So right. really, I just wanted to, uh, without getting too much into the weeds, um, why are your uh, numbers a little bit more yeah. optimistic? Yeah, and just to be clear, uh, even though it was sometimes compared with CBO, uh, we love the CBO. It's my first job after my PhD. I worked there for three years. I have very fond memories. The approaches are different. And the CBO, it takes a much more top-down approach where they start with the aggregate numbers and then they um, you know, adjust those over time. And however, the United States is going through very rich demographic changes. And so, uh, that's where some of the more straight line projections, uh, become a little bit more uh, challenging. So what we do is we start with a very bottom up approach where we have very rich heterogeneity amongst households. Uh, households are differentiated by over 60 different attributes. And we see how that changes over time. Uh, and in particular, that bottom-up approach captures a lot more demographic kind of richness. We also do differ a little bit on some of the assumptions we're making about what's called excess healthcare cost growth. In particular, they tame it down a little bit faster than we do because uh, we believe that some of the, the uh, gains that we've seen in healthcare costs in the last couple of years are actually temporary, and we will get back into um, having uh, some excess cost growth in in, in the future. And so, um, so we're and, and again, some of that still is coming from demographics as well with an aging population, and then even a lower fertility rate over time, and um, how that varies demographically. So that. The bottom-up approach will naturally create a bit more resolution there, and uh, that's what's leading to the more pessimistic numbers. Sure, you want to jump in? Uh, I, I'm glad we talked about this bottom-up ap approach because I did have some questions. Uh, you, you already talked about some of the demographic factors uh, that sort of stand out, the aging population, fertility rate. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, immigration and just population in general, and how that's affecting the long-term outlook. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, for a, a couple of years now, we've said that the population growth rate is coming down. That part is not terribly surprising because it has been coming down for a while. The, the more controversial thing that we, uh, position that we took in 2019, even before COVID, is that we were projecting that the population rate uh, in the United States would slow down enough that we would no longer be replacing ourselves without um, the input from immigration. And so, uh, yes, that happened during COVID. Some people said that was a temporary effect. Um, we are still projecting that it's not temporary, that we might get a little bump up. Um, but 
usually we, we're looking for a population growth rate of about um, uh, 2.1 people per female to get uh, just just to get to level population. Um, we are projecting uh, less than that at most, probably 1.9, 1.8-ish. And so uh, that will uh, certainly mean that without immigration, uh, we are going to have a, a, a shrinking population over time. And so that's why I think a lot of the dynamics about immigration will actually change over the next decade. Countries will, I think, will be competing for immigration um, if both Germany and the United States are facing the same reduction in population size. And so uh, if, you know, if you're a farmer in the United States, you are looking for uh, skills that help you with um, uh, a lot of the, the complements to farming that often come with lower skill immigration. And But if you're in a technology sector, you're looking for higher skill um, parts of immigration. The immigration tends to be what we call a barbell approach and where there's a big concentration of kind of lesser educated, lower skill, and then a big concentration of higher educated, higher skill, but a little bit less in the middle. And so it's both of those, I think, are big positives for the U.S. economy. And I think eventually um, there will be a lot of demand for immigrants. So let's just close the circle of that out and run real quick for, for the listeners. Sure. That is, uh, population is declining, and that means we have a smaller labor force, which means we, produce, we can't produce as much as we have before, and the economy shrinks, right? That's why we need population growth so that our labor force grows, so that our economy grows, Correct. Yes, and a lot of our systems are pay-as-you-go, like Social Security, a large part of Medicare, and so forth. The only way they pay a positive return is through both wage growth and population growth. And so both of them add together. Yeah, so staying with immigration without getting too deep into the weeds, I mean, what do you guys assume in terms of sort of overall immigration levels? And what does the split look like between sort of, you know, the undocumented, you know, share of immigration versus the the you know, legal green card uh, share. Right. So right now we assume current law. So we're not incorporating any changes that Congress may take into account. So when it comes to documented, we're running up against that cap um, and also differentiated by origin. As you know, when it comes to a lot of uh, perm residency, it's sometimes called green card um, that actually has country specific caps to them. And so we are, uh, we have evidence and data about how, uh, the skills that are coming from different countries. We even have a little model about, you know, uh, during which times they would like to come, uh, during their lifetime and also how much even capital they bring. Um, it, it's usually much less than our human capital in the form of labor supply, but how much they are bringing. Uh, if they return and so forth. Um, granted, a lot of that is going to potentially change in, in, in the future with policy changes. And, you know, there's always uncertainty about those things. But in terms of our best guess, uh, we're still uh, running up against the, the cap in terms. We don't think, you know, uh, it, it, they, well, we, we, we think the cap, uh, the legal cap is, uh, at least in the current law, will, will in fact be binding um, for, for most years. In terms of undocumented, that's a good question. Um, in, in particular, the undocumented share, one might wonder why 
that matters so much. But, well, because undocumented workers actually do will will pay in. Um, they're not all being paid under the table. In many cases, they are paying into Social Security and programs and so forth. Um, they're receiving a lot less at the federal level. Um, they do get transfers at the state and local level, often through education for their kids and things like that. Um, lot, but on the federal side, they tend to be a net positive. And also, uh, uh, undocumented workers also have a pretty high participation rate because they are not getting uh, transfers from the government, uh, like green card holders and so forth. And so as a result, they have to kind of participate more in the labor market, whereas immigrants who are green card holders often will have a little bit lower participation rate, although still pretty high. Um, and they use that lower participation rate to go to college, to upskill and things like that, where that does not happen as much with the undocumented. And so the undocumented tends to be lower skill. Um, that's not always true, but that's where the concentration is. And we are using previous forecasts of that you know, going forward and have even some modeling of how much of that flow will come and go over time. I had a quick question, um, and I don't know whether it's because I haven't been paying attention, but you said there was something, a bullet point that popped up in your summary. Labor force participation rates of college-educated individuals are projected to continue their historical declines. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was declining. Can you explain that and what's happening there? Yeah. So this is in particular, um, so if we look at, uh, so we've, we've broken down demographic groups into kind of three major categories. One is sex of, a, in particular, male, female. The second one is education, that is no college, college. And then the third is by race, which we bucket into white, non-white. While we have richer demographics underneath them, uh, all this, we prefer the more uh, coarser buckets because simply it reduces the uncertainty and uh, given the level of census data and so forth. And so it is actually true that in terms of the share of the U.S. population, um, we are projecting, uh, for example, for the if you, if you look at uh, the the white um, uh, college education educated population, it, it, it is actually falling. So in particular, if you look at this figure three in our report that's on our website, the Penworth budget model, um, we have uh, US projected populations by person type. And then we're essentially looking at the, um, where the middle letter there is gonna be a C, um, uh, there. And we, yes, we do see some increase in uh, some college groups, uh, but then we actually, for some male groups, we're actually seeing a bit of a decrease as a share of the entire population. But um, at the same time, um, you know, total uh, occupational um, increase. Uh, so college is still growing, there's no question. Um, it's overall growing. Some demographic groups, it's, 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 it is falling. I think the bigger issue is this. Um, I think maybe you're referring to this, what they call total skill adjusted labor input. That is falling quite a bit. So in particular, um, so what happened historically is what 
economists, we sometimes talk, talk about labor productivity, how productive is each person. The government, um, for its tax-based purposes, certainly cares about that, but it also cares a lot about how many of those groups, how many of those people are you going to have, especially for pay-as-you-go programs. And what we are uh, showing is that if you look at, in the, say, the 1980s, we estimate that the annual growth rate of this productivity measure that's also adjusted for the number of people was quite high, about 2.1% per year. More, uh, more recently, it's fallen to about 1% a year. And what we're projecting is that it will fall even more with these demographic changes to about 0.7% uh, per year. I think that th this really uh, gets to the uh, an area of the long-term budget that um, most people overlook, which is the role of the economy and the role of the labor force and the um, productivity of the labor force. And, and the fact that, as you just laid out, I mean, there's as you have a shrinking uh, labor force in some areas, it, it has a diminishing effect on the economy, yeah. which makes in turn makes that's that's inconsistent with a budget that is uh, supposed to produce higher and higher benefits, particularly for an elderly population. Um, that's that's right. And, and I think people sometimes confuse two things. One is if you just look at people type, we are projecting college educated people types are going to increase over time as a share of the population, but their actual labor force participation um, is actually has been declining. And so uh, on one hand, you may get the stamp of approval of I got a college education, but what we actually care about is not simply do you have a college education, but are you actually participating in the labor force? And that number is going in the opposite direction. And so the net effect has is like what you're saying, Bob, is to potentially contract um, that the size of the labor force uh, uh, rate, and we're, we're, we're projecting a fairly sizable decrease with these demographics. Uh, when you um, you talked about doing the, the, the bottom-up review of the demographics and, and how that contributes to revenues and, and the economy, how, was that a, uh, like a new innovative approach that you were trying to take deliberately to, to get away from more conventional ways of looking at it? It is. It's it's very consistent with our approach in general at the Penn Warren budget model to really start bottom up and start with lots of data and then put structure of a model uh, uh, onto it because it's especially important when you have very rich demographic changes and also when you have uh, programs that are largely pay-as-you-go uh, finance, such as Social Security, parts of Medicare, and so forth. And so the bottom-up approach really uh, it shows the details in, uh, a lot more. So typically with the, with the more conventional top-down approach, things like productivity, and that's kind of a classic one, what you're doing is you're taking past productivity numbers and you're kind of just straight-lining, projecting those forward. And there's very little, and so that's what's conventionally done for social security analysis, for example, is that we look at recent productivity and straight line it forward. But 
it misses the fact that we actually have a population right now that's fairly productive because people in their 50s and 60s are actually pretty darn productive. Uh, what happens when they retire is that they are replaced by younger people um, who are a little bit less productive. It's going to take time for them to become more productive. But at the same time, some of those people are becoming less attached to the workforce through uh, a lower participation rates. And so it's all those things have to kind of be put together. I mean, if we're in the 1960s and 450s and straight line projections may have been fine, you know, uh, back then, but now things are much more detailed and uh, in terms of our demographics and our, our fiscal institutions are much more pay-as-you-go than they were back then. Well, I really like the idea of productive 60-year-olds and uh, people in their 60s. That, um, I think that that's something that the nation can rely on. Uh, right now, we're going to have to take a short break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about the long-term fiscal outlook with Dr. Kent Smitters. He is the faculty director at the Penn Wharton Budget Model. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and our Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are talking with Dr. Kent Smetters, Faculty Director of the Penn Wharton Budget Model at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we're looking at long-term budget projections that Kent and his colleagues have recently put together. And, um, you know, uh, we were talking about the labor force and productivity and an innovative approach that you've taken to that. Before I pass it back to my uh, colleagues here, there's one thing that I wanted to, to ask you about, because I get this question sometimes about productivity. We're talking about the aging of the population. And so we're going to have to have more in productivity. And some people say to me, well, don't you know that there's going to be a productivity explosion because of technology? Yeah. And so uh, there's no need to worry about that. What, what are your views on yeah. that? Uh, it's a hope and a prayer. I mean, people have been, you know, hoping on that for a long time. The fact of the matter is the really big last innovation was the transistor. And that was quite a long time ago. This is the problem with, you know, new sensationalism of things like cold fusion, which, you know, I remember, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's exciting if that were to happen. Odds are still very much against it. Or, you know, bat you know, batteries, you know, it, you know how many suppliers of batteries are just on the verge of tripling the capacity. You know, there's a reason why they call it liar, liar battery supplier, because there's so <laughs> much sensationalism about that area. And so, you know, I think it would be great to have that gift, but everything else is working the opposite direction. Uh, we are having growing debt. We have growing carbon issues aren't being priced here. And we have lots of things that are converging at the same time. Um, and so the precautionary rational approach is to, to um, not, uh, on a hope and a prayer, but to actually take a prudent approach here. Steve? Yeah, so let's change subject slightly and talk a little bit about interest rates, one of my, one of my favorite topics. Yes. In our current inflationary environment, you know, we've been looking, I guess the last inflation numbers were at 6.5%. Right. And the last time I checked, the, the, the yield on the 10-year Treasury bond was 3.5%. So we're talking about a real negative interest rate of 3%. And obviously, that's sort of 
unprecedented and presumably not sustainable. How, how does your model deal with the whole sort of interest rate issue? Yeah, and the, the inflation expectation, the forward-looking rate is really crucial here because the market certainly is not pricing that high. In fact, if you look at the forward rates and uh, you subtract those from the nominals, you are getting up now positive real interest rate. But right now, what we typically are doing in our discounting of future liabilities and tax revenues, we are using the government 30-year treasury yield. And so uh, there's uh, no question in the short run, there might be some you know, disturbance there. But you know, what, what we find is that even if you go out further in time, um, things even get worse. And so, you know, we're actually being kind of optimistic here when we talk about the 225% uh, number. If you actually were to do a longer horizon, then what we find is that if the government were try to go on a sustainable path forever, it would forever have to increase tax revenue across all sources of income at the federal level, both the income tax, business side, as well as payroll tax side by 40% or reduce its spending forever by 30% or some combination of both. There, there are additional reasons, including some macro effects of why those numbers are actually a, a bit um, you know, um, optimistic. Yeah, I mean, if you include in macro effects, things could even get worse than that. So, you know, if anything, we're still biased a bit toward, you know, a, a tamer message <laughs> rather than the, this uh, um, pessimistic message. But um, yes, during the short run, we still, we are incorporating more, um, uh, some disturbance there, but we we're, we are using market data about forward-looking expectations and uh, inflation, which is uh, uh, much tamer than what we've seen in the last couple of years. So b- before we leave the topic, what what's sort of the long run? I mean, I, you may not really get to a steady state in your model, but in terms of 2050, what what are we sort of looking at in terms of real interest rates out in the in the long run? Oh, yeah. We didn't report that here, but we, um, so if I can say what we're right now doing is using the 30 year, uh, yield along, uh, the path that we're, uh, uh, showing here. And so, but if we were to report out the interest rate, uh, we're going from basically a, close to a zero ish real yield today to over a 2% real yield. Um, and by 2050, uh, it, I don't believe, for example, with these numbers that the Federal Reserve will ever get back to its 2% rule. It could get there for a while. I don't think it will be able to stay there um, unless Congress takes some pretty sizable action. But uh, it's, it's an increase in real interest rates about uh, close to between today and then the, by 2050 of about a little less than, say, 2% real. So what you mentioned inflation, what's, you know, I mean, the, the Fed has a target. They're talking, of course, this is the personal consumption expenditure index, which is a little different than the CPI. Yeah. But what's sort of, do you, do you do you look at both of those and what's sort of your long run int- uh, inflation rate? Well, uh, we do. And so uh, we are assuming that the Fed for these calculations that is able to get back to the 2% because that's their stated mission and we're trying to do everything under current law and not ever make an assumption about how Congress will change its mind or things like that. 
Um, we're really trying to say if we stay in this current path, including the Federal Reserve that gets back to the 2%, this is the path that we are on. Um, because these estimates are conventional, they correspond more to what CBO would, you know, uh, would, uh, describe their estimates to be, except they're again, more aggregated or it's just bottom, more bottom up. We're, we are not incorporating a lot of the macro feedback, um, uh, effects here. The, the situation would get even worse because you would get a contraction of GDP. We are actually going to, in about a month, a month and a half, uh, show with a, a, a newer model that's this big math exercise, a very intense computational uh, uh, framework, show that debt is even more, uh, has a bigger deterioration on the economy than what we as Penn Budget Model have shown in the past. Um, and that's simply coming through um, a richer dynamics that we're able to model with uh, some math breakthroughs as well as some computational uh, estimates. And it is pretty, um, you know, it, it's pretty uh, nerve wracking uh, what those estimates will show. Well, that's the way that's a, a way to tease your next appearance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Tori, did you have any uh, any follow ups? I know uh, uh, Kent is on a tight time schedule. Here. Yeah, just just real quick. Um, uh, at the top of the, the show, you talked about how this was a, a current law baseline, and it made some assumptions about, for example, the, the, the 2017 tax cuts, which are supposed to expire. Right. So it includes those revenues. So it's actually right. very generous on the revenue side. Has Penn Wharton looked at what we call an alternative baseline that sort of reflects current policy? Or is that uh, something on the to-do list? Is that something we can look for in the future? Yeah, we have estimates of the extenders, like if we were to uh, uh, extend the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we actually released those several years ago, and we should update those at some point. We're going through some discussion about how do we um, potentially update how we think about itemized deduction, deductions and that new, if we were to go back, given that some of that data it has disappeared from the tax forms or has disappeared from the tax data. Um, uh, but because of the higher standard deduction, but we are going to revisit that. That will add several trillion dollars of cost if it's really made permanent, um, over, you know, the next, you know, several decades. Uh, but nonetheless, yes, we do try to stick to current law. I mean, there's always, it, it, when it comes to social security, for example, there's always this debate. What do, what do we mean by, Current law versus present law. And there, what we are assuming is what's sometimes called scheduled benefits. So that even when the trust fund runs out, um, uh, the benefits are paid as scheduled. And so, as you know, the Social Security trustees present numbers both ways, but as scheduled benefits and then um, yeah, so sometimes called uh, current law. Under current law, by definition, there's no problem with Social Security. And the reason why is benefits are just cut. And right. so therefore- you run out of money, you get smaller of, benefits. Yeah, it, it literally grandma, it's not, you know, it's not, you know, phased in over time by law. It's grandma, 90 years old, is going to see her check go down. And so uh, we, none of us, you know, including CBO, view that as something that is, uh, you know, what we wa really want to be modeling here. So we, we trying to show the size of the problem by focusing that one on uh, what's called scheduled benefits. Yes, yeah, so those uh, 
productive uh, 60-year-olds uh, uh, don't want to have their benefits cut uh, once they get to be 90-year-olds. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been discussing the long-term fiscal outlook with Dr. Kent Smetters, faculty director of the Penn Wharton budget model at the University of Pennsylvania. Kent, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Uh, we appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, Tori and Steve and I will be right back after these short messages when we will discuss what else? The debt limit. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tory Gorman, and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are back, and we're going to discuss the debt limit in this segment. Um, in case you haven't been paying attention, the nation bumped up against the debt limit last week, and uh, now the Treasury Secretary is taking what she calls extraordinary measures uh, to try to keep the uh, debt under the, the limit. That will last for a little while uh, until June, she estimates. <laughs> and that, along with available cash on hand, means that there's no immediate crises. But if Congress doesn't suspend or raise the debt limit by sometime in June, some uh, very bad things may happen. Uh, uh, and nobody really knows what those could be. So it's possible that something will happen in the interim that they might reach some deal. Of course, the Republicans are saying they won't do any debt limit increase without spending cuts to go along with it. And the Biden administration is saying, no way, we need to raise the debt limit one way or the other. And so we're not going to be held hostage for this. Um, Tory. Um, and Steve, both. Uh, let's let's start with a little politics. Um, not, <laughs> um, not that there's you know every politics about the debt limit, but um, you know, really, what does the political situation look like? Do you, do you think that there's any chance that they'll resolve this impasse before June? Well, I'd, I'd like to rephrase the impasse just a little bit by saying that. Right. The Biden administration doesn't want to negotiate on the debt limit. They just want a clean debt limit increase. And what Republicans want are draconian cuts in spending. And I want to and I say that because they think the context is, imper is, is important because neither position is is sustainable. Um, both parties are going to have to meet in the middle somewhere. And that's ultimately, I think, how this is going to play out. What's uh, what is that? What's the context of meeting in the middle? I think the Biden administration is going to have to give a little bit on some some sort of of whether it's, you know, specific dollar cuts or a process for cutting spending, um, whatever, you know, whatever gets gets, you know, Republicans from point A to, to point A and a half rather than from point A to point B. Um, what, what, do, what do you think, Steve? <laughs> Well, you know, this is deja vu or Groundhog Day, whatever your favorite movie is. I mean, you know, we've watched this play out time and time again. Um, you know, you go back to, you know, as far back as 1985, when I started on the Hill, that's when Graham Rudman uh, came about when we created the sequester process. That was part of the debt limit negotiations back then. And so, you know, you go through through history of the past several decades and, 
you know, occasionally Congress does clean debt limit increases and occasionally they get their, you know, they, they have a, uh, an, an insistence that no, we're, we're not going to do that anymore. And we're going to insist on, you know, some sort of reform or some pound of flesh that, you know, shows our commitment to fiscal discipline. And, you know, we're, we've reached one of those inflection points where this, this go around, the Republicans in the House are insisting that they get uh, some substantial spending reduction in exchange for raising the debt limit. You know, it's, it's hard to know exactly how it'll play out, whether they'll come up with something real. I mean, the last time we did it, 2011, you know, they put in spending caps and then they subsequently ignored the spending caps. So, you know, it's hard to be too optimistic that this will result in something that's real and meaningful, uh, as opposed to something that, you know, is window dressing that both sides can declare victory and go home. But at the end of the day, they won't do anything that will actually improve the, the situation in the long run. And that's, you know, that, if well, I worry true, about them. I, I, I worry about them making the situation worse. I mean, well, you're, we did used to have kind of a feeling that the debt limit was a convenient excuse for the parties to come together and make a deal. I mean, they could explain to their folks, you know, well, we had to give a little bit. We had to, you know, because we had the debt limit, so we had to compromise. And I think there's a reasonable chance that there won't be a compromise um, and that we're going to, for the first time, test what happens when you actually go past the X date, as they call it, when the extraordinary measures run out and the cash runs out and Treasury has bills to pay and they don't have enough cash on hand to pay those bills. And you got to figure out what happens then. And that's, um, you know, that, that hasn't happened before. I think there's a reasonable chance it might happen this year because the parties are so dug in. I think the one reason why I'm not so so worried about that scenario is that, um, you know, re Republicans are pretty intent on putting forward legislation that would tell Treasury how to prioritize payments in a situation like that. And I think that legislation itself will generate such blowback um, from financial markets and and financial donors um, that I just I don't think they'll take it that far. Um, do I think we're going to set some precedent on this debt limit? Yeah, I think there's some some something procedure wise. I, I think there's going to be they're going to push the envelope on something, but I think it's going to be in the steps leading up to that point. I think and you know Mitch McConnell, say what you want about his politics, he's always the adult in the room. Um, and you, you absolutely know that he's got something in his back pocket in case we get down to, you know, T minus three days, T minus four days, something that he can put on the floor in the Senate that will pass. And then they'll just jam it down the throat of the, of the house. Um, I like that scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a, I think it's a reasonable one. Um, they, I, I'm, I'm not going to, um, be too sanguine that they're not going to go over the cliff, but there's a possibility that they might be able to do something on the on the process side. Um, you know, some people have talked about the Trust Act. There's something mm -hmm. called the, I think, Responsible Budget Act or something like that. There are ways that could put a commission of some sort or special committees of the Congress that would have to look at these things. Somebody mentioned to me the other day that maybe they could could look at rooting out waste and have, have a 
like a new grace commission or something for those whose memories go back to the uh, 1980s. We've got um, an entire GAO with volumes and exactly, volumes yes, on yeah. instructions on how to in- eliminate waste. If they could, I, Congress I thought about just that. Read the reports that they request from GAO. I could go with a waste commission. I mean, you know, who's who, who's. But then again, some people say that IRS shouldn't collect all the taxes that they owe. So maybe some people are in favor of waste. I don't know. Steve, do you? There's a. I mean, economists um, are really worried about this. Um, do you uh, I mean, do you think there's any real chance of the federal government actually defaulting on its bonds? Well, <laughs> well like I say, I, I, you know, I hope that that calmer, cooler minds will prevail. But, yeah, I mean, the worst case scenario is, you know, we don't meet some obligation. We have bonds that, you know, we have three month bills and six month bills. And, you know, there's notes and bonds and bills coming due you know, all the time. And if we reach the point where the government is unable to honor the obligations on bonds that are coming due, you know, that clearly will spook the financial markets. And they're going to say, you know, do we want to hold government debt if there's some you know, uncertainty that, that it will be rolled over and the interest will be paid on time? And, you know, were that to not happen you know, we could see a, a, a loss of confidence, which would spike interest rates. It would, you know, shake up financial markets. It could, it could certainly be a, a very, you know, bad, damaging situation for, for the, uh, the U.S. economy and, and global financial markets. But, you know, I, I hope people understand <laughs> that, you know, in the worst case scenario, you don't want any of those things to happen. And, and so, you know, they're going to do what they can to, to prevent it. But, you know, yeah, I mean, because ultimately what it means is that even if they even if they were to prioritize and I think they would, I think that if this I really think that they would make payments on principal and interest on on the debt. But uh, once and and for reasons that we'll talk about on a future show, <laughs> just to preview it, uh, Social Security and Medicare Part A anyway, seem safe because I've got trust funds that are. Um, still solvent. Yeah, yeah, they're still solvent, even if the government isn't. So, right. um, uh, but there would be a lot of bills that couldn't be paid, and that would mean that a lot of contractors, employees, beneficiaries, uh, state and local governments simply wouldn't get the money that they were owed and expecting, and it would be a terrible mess. It would be not only very, very um, it would create a great deal of hardship, but would also create chaos and, and lots of legal bills uh, for the federal government as well. And for the bondholders who were getting their money anyway, I don't think they would feel particularly comforted by the fact that the <laughs> Treasury was able to pay them because it was stiffing everybody else. Um, so it really is a situation to be ignored. I mean, to be ignored, <laughs> to, be, <laughs> to be avoided, to be, to be avoided. Yes. Uh, better choice of words. Um, but, uh, and uh, so it, w- it would be nice if they could solve it before, uh, June. Um, don't bet on it. <laughs> I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't bet on it either. No, no, we, Congress has a habit of waiting until the last minute. I don't on understand most everything. Yeah. Well, you mentioned McConnell and I know we talked about this with, uh, Rohit Kumar, but I really think the McConnell rule is, is the best, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, let the president 
request or, you know, announced that he is going to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, Congress then has like 15 days or something like that to register its disapproval. And if it votes to disapprove it, uh, then that goes to the president uh, and he can veto that disapproval resolution. And all the Republicans can have voted against a debt limit increase and even some Democrats if they wanted to. And yet the debt limit would go up. And I think that would be a really good um, way of solving this. But let's let's be clear. We're just about run out of time. But, you know, there really is a <laughs> as the existence of the Concord Coalition is testimony to, there is a need to focus on long term fiscal policy. We really do have a debt problem, uh, but trying to enforce the debt limit is um, not the best way of going about it. Uh, well, anyway, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Stay tuned for much more on the debt limit in future weeks. <laughs> I want to thank our prior guest, uh, Ken Smetas of uh, Penn Wharton Budget uh, Model. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.